Well, there you go. There's your taster of, uh, of two kings. Uh, it's, um, it's an exciting part of God's word, and I want us to, uh, to think about it this morning, not just as a cool magic show, which I think it might be possible to think about, having, uh, having heard that. Uh, and I want us to see what, what's, it, what's it actually trying to teach us. So let's pray and ask God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to turn our attention to this part of your word this morning. We pray, Father, that you might, by your Holy Spirit, open our ears and our hearts, that we might hear this word and apply it. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't think I introduced myself before. If we haven't met, my name's Stuart Starr. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, it's my absolute delight to be continuing our series in Two Kings uh, with a strong conviction that every part of God's word is useful and helpful for us, uh, including some parts of it that might not be as familiar for each of us. So let's, uh, let's start this morning. I, I want to turn our attention to the thought, which I've put very small up there. Uh, I want to suggest to you this morning that God cares. God cares. Now for some of us, that thought might be challenging this morning. It might be challenging because we think on the whole that God, if he cares, only thinks at kind of a big global level. God cares at the level of the world. Some of us might be comfortable thinking, oh, well, okay, God, God cares about kings and leaders. That's kind of the level that, that he's interested in in the world, kings and leaders. For some of us, we might think, oh, well, he's actually interested in countries. And more particularly, we can tell from the Bible, God's interested in Israel. So if we're looking at what God's interested in the world, God's interested in Israel. Some of us may think, does God care about the weak, the least in the world? And how would we draw a conclusion that he did? And, and if we think at any of those levels, we can be almost completely convinced at times that there's no way in the world God could possibly care about the trivia of the world. Your lost keys. I, if God is caring about the world, what level does he care about the world? And what does that level of care have to say to me this morning as I come, come, to, come here to church? God cares is a big statement. The real question I think we often ask ourselves is, at what level does God care? And does his care get to me? I'm going to suggest this morning as we look at two kings that we're going to see God cares from the level of politics and the world all the way down to the personal and the trivial. And that we're going to see this in God's engagement with his people uh, in two kings here. That God cares and that he's actively at work in the world around him. Well, a quick recap. It'll be a recap for some of you. For some of you who are new here today, uh, it might be an introduction. So that's, that's good. We're doing a series on one and two kings. And uh, in essence, what we've seen, uh, part of the geography is that there's a nation, the nation of Israel. Uh, there's a temple in Israel in a place called Jerusalem. And so far, so good. I'm sure we're all familiar with those pieces of information. The bit that Matt and I have been labouring to help people to understand uh, is that the nation of Israel didn't stay united. In fact, over time, the nation of Israel was split in two as Rehoboam and Jeroboam in the north took two separate kingdoms into the, into the next part of Israel's history. So Judah down in the south and Israel up in the north. 
Where we pick it up today in 2 Kings, uh, we have a king in Judah called Jehoshaphat. Great name. I look forward to him turning up on the kids' roster sometime soon. Uh, And up in the north, we have a guy called Ahab, who's made the new capital city of the north, Samaria. Uh, You can see him there, a picture with his uh, lovely wife, Jezebel, beside him. Um, I think Matt called her a piece of work the other week. Um, She is a very, very uh, evil influence in the kingdom. I don't think Ahab had much going for him in his own right, but but Jezebel really pushes them in a, a terrible and despicable direction. And so the people up in the north have turned away from the living God and are serving another God called Baal. Into this mix, we have a guy at the end of 1 Kings and the start of 2 Kings called Elijah, who's a major prophet whose job is to call this king who's gone astray back to the living God. And uh, as Matt pointed out the other week, uh, he failed miserably at that, which is not really great encouragement for anyone, but nonetheless was Elijah's job. Today, we're going to meet another guy. We've met Elijah and we're about to meet Elisha. Uh, They are two separate people. Incidentally, this is a very, very difficult part of God's word. Uh, I was reading the other day, uh, just in preparation for this, and I was looking at the name of the king, King Jehoram. And you're going, okay, King Jehoram, fantastic. Would you love to know that there's a King Jehoram in Judah in the south and a King Jehoram in Israel in the north? Same name. That's problematic, isn't it? Anyway, you've got Elijah and Elisha, and you might think that someone's fumbling with their names. But no, they're separate people. And the thing that we're not exploring in great detail today uh, is the transition from Elijah to Elisha. Uh, We have a Polaroid uh, in the centre here of uh, the transition uh, from one prophet to the other. Uh, You've heard Swing Low Sweet Chariot, have we heard that? Uh, Chariots of Fire. This is that story. It's the way that Elijah was taken up to heaven. So there's a handover of prophets We go from having Elijah on the scene, God takes him, literally takes him up to heaven and his mantle, his responsibility falls to this prophet called Elisha, who we're going to follow today. As the handover was happening, uh, there was quite a uh, a deal of, you'll look forward to reading it, we're reading through 1 and 2 Kings at the moment, there's quite a deal of, uh, of interest in his departure. Elijah's wandering around and he says to Elisha, Today I'm, I'm going here. And uh, as he goes along, some prophets turn up and they say, do you know your master's going to be taken today? And, uh, and Elisha says, yes, I know. Let's not talk about it. Anyway, he goes to another place. More prophets come out and say, did you know that your master's going to be taken today? He says, yeah, I know. Let's not talk about it. Anyway, they get to the, they get to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is flowing along like that. And Elijah parts the river and they walk across on dry land to the other side at which point Elisha says hey if you're going to go can you give me a double portion of your blessing and Elijah says I don't really know if I can but if you see me going a double portion will be yours so all of a sudden chariot of fire disappeared off into the distance and there Elisha is left on his own so he goes back to the Jordan River and he takes off his cloak that Elijah Elijah had left behind and he taps the water and the water parts in two and he walks across on dry land. 
Pretty cool. The transition has been successful and Elisha is going to be God's man speaking God's word into the nation of Israel in the north. So we've had a transition. We're now following the story with Elisha. What I want to do as we have a look at Elisha, there's six chapters roughly that I'm covering today. There's a whole lot of stories there. You should go home and read them. Thank you, Heidi, for reading the part of chapter four. There are all sorts of amazing incredible things that happened in this period of Israel's history. What I want to do for you is not tell you everything that happens uh, in those six chapters, because that would be a slightly longer sermon than the one I'm intending to give. But what I am going to do is point out to you a number of the instances that happen and how we can see God's level of care in what happens. Is that all right? So the first one I want to tell you about is uh, the widow's oil jar. Have a look with me. Uh, at one, uh, sorry, two Kings chapter four. Uh, two Kings chapter four. Now it's worth, worth pointing out as we uh, as we have a look. We're talking about the wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, "Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two my two boys as his slaves." Here's the thing. There is no one in that society more vulnerable than a widow. No one more vulnerable than a widow. This is the least in society, okay? And she sees that she's in big trouble. Someone's coming to take her boys to secure the debt. And she doesn't have anything else that she can do. She can't work. She can't earn income. So the only thing that she can do is hand her boys over, which is terrible. So she cries out to Elisha and says, Elisha, do you care and does God care? And here's what Elisha says. What have you got? He says, well, we've got a jar of oil. He says, well, here's what you should do. Go into town and ask everybody there for a jar. Don't just get one or two. Get all the jars that you can find. She gets all the jars and takes them home. He says, keep pouring the oil into the jars from this tiny little jug. So she pours and she pours, and she pours, and she pours, and she pours, until she fills up every jug that's been given. And then the oil stops flowing out of the jug. Elisha says to her, you've now got stacks of oil. Why don't you go sell that and pay your debts? It's brilliant. Wonderful provision from God, from what she had multiplied in her hands. What's the point here? The faithful are cared for. The least in the land are cared for by the living God. Miraculously in this case, but we see his care and his provision. Let's go to a different level. Uh, The G20 summit is happening at the moment and uh, I tried to get a picture of only three leaders, uh, but the uh, head of of China is poking his head in the bottom there. Um, Bonus points if you can recognise any of the other leaders there. Anyone got them? Sorry? Berlusconi, uh, who's the former Italian uh, leader. Obviously Obama. Does anyone know who the other guy is? Neither do I. There we go. That's good. (laughs) Someone in a suit decided to photobomb a G20 photo. That's pretty good. Although I suspect anything with the word bomb and G20 would get you in trouble. Um, Three kings. We're now going from the least in society right up to the highest. We're looking, does God care? Does God interact at the level of kings? 
Let's jump uh, to chapter 3 and verses 13 to 15. Uh, What's happened here is some kings have got together. Amazingly, they're cooperating. Judah down in the south and Israel up in the north have decided to cooperate. They've been in civil war, so this is unusual. They've also thrown in the king of Edom at the same time and they've all decided to chuff off and go and attack Moab who's rebelled and not paying some Jews that they want. So they they are going out into the desert. It's a fairly ill-conceived plan, it appears, because midway through the journey, they run out of water. At that point, they go, hey, has anyone got a prophet? Has anyone got a prophet that we could talk to? And uh, they kind of cast around a little bit, and then someone says, ah, Elisha, I think, is tagging along here somewhere. Maybe we should get Elisha. Have a listen to the way that Elisha responds. Elisha said to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. In other words, you've got this other God. Why don't you talk to your other God's prophets? Because they surely will have something to say to you. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. What he's figured out is, if we're failing, if this plan isn't coming together, It's because the God that we were trusting in has let us down. We actually need to talk to a prophet of the true and living God if we want to turn this around. And so they talk to Elisha. And Elisha's very rude. He actually says, hey, listen, king of Israel, if it wasn't for this guy from Judah, I wouldn't even be talking to you. He's really full on. And then he says, well, do you know what? Tomorrow, without you guys doing anything, this place that's now desert is going to be flowing with water. And the next day, there's water flowing everywhere. They feed the troops, they feed the horses, and the guys in Moab look out, and as the sun's coming up, they see the red on the water that was in the desert, and they go, ah, it's blood. These guys must have been killing one another in the night. Let's go out and attack them. They come out of their city, and they attack, and the the battle is won. Quite incredible. What's the point? I mean, it's a cool story. I love it. What's the point? The point is the paths of the great are directed by God. God cares for, God oversees the paths of the great, not just the least, but the paths of the great as well. Well, next. This is, I'm I'm prepared to say, my favourite random story in the Bible. We're going to see the whole of this story right here. Are you ready? Here we go. We're in uh, chapter 6. You should see that it's actually in the Bible. You should check with me to see that it is actually a Bible story. Uh, So here we are in chapter 6. Uh, and I'm reading from verses uh, 5 to 7. Uh, here we go. Uh, basically, some prophets come and say, hey, we should, we should make, make a house to hang out with Elisha. Uh, verse 5, as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh no, my Lord, he cried out. It was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. End of story. Okay, now, I'm convinced that this is useful, encouraging story for us. Not that when you lose an axe head that you've borrowed, that you should throw a stick on it. I don't think there's an application like that. But here's the thing that intrigues me. Why this miracle? Why for these people did that happen? Surely you've got to ask that question, don't you? Here's why I think. 
Even the trivial needs of God's faithful people are met. Here's a prophet who borrowed an axe head. He's so broke, he doesn't even have an axe. Yeah? And he borrowed it. And it got lost. And he had nothing to pay for it with. And you'd think, does God care about my trivial needs? Well, the answer is, miraculously, incredibly, God provides for his faithful people. This little remnant of faithful people who are living in Israel, listening to God's voice. He says, I'll provide for you. Even the trivial needs of God's faithful people are met. This is an amazing story. This is a picture of leprosy. Now, I don't know what picture you have in mind when you hear of leprosy. It's a terrible, terrible disease. It ruins your ability to feel. And because you can't feel, you start damaging yourself and you don't know. And so it's not so much that bits of your body just naturally fall off. It's that when they're injured, you don't know. And they start to get sore and damaged and eventually your body starts physically breaking down. Now, Naaman was the head of a foreign nation's army. A foreign nation's army. And he hears, after he gets leprosy, from a slave girl from Israel. So they've taken a little girl into their home in one of their military conquests. And she says, you know, in Israel, there's a guy who could help you out. And Naaman, the mighty army leader of a foreign nation, asks his king, he says, king, can you send a letter to the king of Israel and have me fixed up? So the king sends a letter to the king of Israel and says, can you fix up my general's leprosy? The king of Israel tears his robes in two and goes, this is ridiculous. This guy's picking a fight with me. I can't cure leprosy. Elisha hears about it and says, I tell the king, there is a, there is a prophet of, of God in Israel. Send him to me. So Naaman comes to Elisha and Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. He says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And the guy's incensed. He says, we've got better rivers at home. I could wash at home. If that's all you want me to do, I'm going back home to where the rivers are better than this little swamp you've got here in Israel. Now, his servant is very smart, and he says, guess what? If he'd asked you to do something hard, would you have done it? The guy goes, yep. He says, well, how about if you do something easy? I guess. So he goes and washes himself seven times, and it says God made his skin like the skin of a boy. Healed him, completely restored him extraordinary miracle. Here's here's what he says. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. Listen to this. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in the world except in Israel. Does God care only about Israel? Here's the extraordinary story from this, this here. Foreigners are cared for. Those who will trust in God from wherever will be loved and cared for. This is a really cool one. Uh, So uh, Gehazi is uh, the servant of um, Elisha. And uh, at some point later, armies of Aram, Elisha's a freak. God tells him what's going on. And every time the king of Aram tries to lay an ambush for the king of Israel, Elisha comes and says, there are men hiding on that pass up there, don't go there. After a while, the king of Aram goes, what the heck? Come here, team. Who on, you, who on our team here is ratting me out to the king of Israel? Some of you are betraying me. And they go, it's not us. There's a guy in Israel who knows the things that are said in the king's bedchamber. 
and he reveals them to this prophet. And he goes, all right, well, let's go get him. So they send an army to go and get Elisha. And the servant goes out in the morning and sees the army outside and goes, strike, I'm in big trouble. And he goes back inside and he tells his boss, hey, boss, we're in trouble. There's a foreign army outside that's come to kill us. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. I'm in 2 Kings 6. This is absolutely brilliant. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Yeah! No, Sunday morning, too hard. Isn't that awesome? Here's an army that I can see. We are lost. Elisha's just sitting there in his house. He goes, God, show him what I can see. The armies of God surrounding the house. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Can you see the care and support of the living God? What had to happen? He had to have his eyes open to see it. And Elisha was there totally safe in the hands of God. Isn't that extraordinary? What I want you to see, God can show his care because he's always in control. God's never outnumbered. God's never outnumbered. You and God are in the majority. You and God are in the majority, no matter who is opposing you. You and God are in the majority because God is always in control. So there's a sermon. That's pretty cool. Don't we want to know where Jesus fits in? I mean, it's all this Old Testament stuff. How does Jesus fit in? That's a good question. Let's have a look at this idea we talked about the other week, about the precedent picture. There's something that goes before and then something that's fulfilled. Have a look at this. Here's my little pictures of the Old Testament. The story from creation and fall all the way through to the kings and then the exile where they they lost the land and eventually they come back. That's the Old Testament. We have our prophet Elijah here. We have a terrible ruling couple. And we have the new guy who takes over and actually does even more than the guy who preceded him, who's Elisha. Now, what happens in the New Testament is something quite extraordinary. In the New Testament, we have a guy called John the Baptist. We have a terrible couple, Herod and Herodias. And we have a guy who comes after him who's even more powerful, a guy called Jesus. I want to show you how the New Testament picks up this idea of Elijah and Elisha and John the Baptist and Jesus. We're going to start in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 1 and verses 7 to 8 says this about Elisha. The king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elisha the Tishbite. So Elijah, sorry, well done, Russell. Thank you. Moment. Elijah. So what did Elijah wear? Hair and a leather belt. Very good. That's the bit you want to get from here. In Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, last book in the Old Testament, this is the end hope. So Israel has had kings. They forgot their license agreement that they took up with God. Do you remember that? Look after the land, be faithful with me, you'll keep it forever. They had lost the promised land. They'd gone away into exile. They'd just come back, and this is the end prophet 
in the whole of the Old Testament, listen to what he says. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. Another Elijah, because Elijah's always died, already died. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I'll come and strike the land with total destruction. So Malachi, 400 years before Jesus, says, look out and Elijah is coming. Be looking. They waited 400 years. Have a listen to what happens next. John the Baptist turns up. Listen to the way Luke talks about John the Baptist. So you've heard of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Gospels. Here's the way Luke talks about John the Baptist. There's a prophecy made over John the Baptist before he's born. A man comes and says, here's what John is going to be like. You ready? Listen to these words. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Do you see? John the Baptist will be the Elijah they've been looking forward to for 400 years. A guy's going to turn up who's going to point forward to somebody else. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing, wait for it, made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I. Can you see this? What the people of Israel were supposed to see when they saw John the Baptist was, it's Elijah. This is the one who was promised. Now, I bet you haven't got that last time you read through. You just thought John was into bad hygiene. A bit of a weirdo. No, no, no. He was fulfilling the prophecy of Elijah. Then you've got the guys who come after them. You've got Elisha and you've got Jesus. Elisha follows Elijah. Jesus follows John the Baptist. Have a look at this. This is just cool. The parallels between Elisha and Jesus. You ready? Watch this. It's awesome. Okay. So Elijah, John. Something happens in the Jordan. Something happens in the Jordan. A miracle with bread. A miracle with bread. A miracle with the dead. A miracle with the dead. A miracle with the leprous. A miracle with the leprous. A thing about water. A thing about water. The blind being healed, the blind being healed. And we could go on. Jesus is like Elisha following Elijah. He's following John the Baptist. He is the one who was being looked forward to. Can you see how incredible that parallel is? All right. So who is Jesus? Is Jesus Elisha reincarnated or something like that? Does that sound likely, church? No, that's good. Helpful. He's not. No, that's good. Not, not reincarnated. Here's the thing. Uh, Jesus, this is actually from our reading in uh, Luke. So let's open it up. Luke chapter 9. Uh, Luke chapter 9. If you find the page, you can call it out. 1038. Uh, if you have a look at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets long ago has come back to life. So here are options. Who's Jesus? Is Jesus Elijah? Is Jesus John the Baptist? So John the Baptist had been killed. 
Is Jesus John the Baptist reincarnated? Again, church, what's the answer? Good, good answer, good answer. We don't believe in reincarnation. Um, Is he Elisha come back to life again or one of the other prophets? He's done lots of things like Elisha. Is he Elisha? Have a listen to the answer. Verse 20, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Who is Jesus? Is he a freaky prophet? No. Is he a reincarnated prophet? No. Who is he? The promised king of Israel. The one they had been longing for since the promise was made to David a thousand years ago. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king. Why does all of that matter? I've said to you today that God cares, that he cares at the political level, that he cares at the personal and trivial level. How do we know? First reason we know is because God fulfilled his promise and sent Jesus to be the fulfillment a thousand years after the promise was made to David. Secondly, we know God cares about every part of our life, including our sin, because the cross tells us so. On the cross, the promised Messiah died that you and I, for our great sins and our small, might be forgiven and made right before the living God. God cares. He's always in control. He cares about every part of your life and he wants you, just like Israel, to bring it in line with his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. We thank you that you are never outnumbered. We thank you, Father, that even in the apparent defeat of your death on the cross, that, Father, you would raise your son to life and claim the victory there. Father, would you help us to entrust into your care the great and the small of the world around us? Father, would you govern and direct the steps of the leaders meeting in the G20. Would you have mercy on us, Father, in the trivial? But most of all, Father, we pray that you might guide and lead us to follow Jesus, to take up our cross and follow him in obedience to you and your promise-supported word. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.